the core idea is that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And so whenever you're building a new habit, you're casting votes for that kind of identity. You're reinforcing that type of person. So in a sense, your habits are how you like embody a particular identity. So anytime that you do one push-up, you embody the identity of someone who works out. Or if you write one sentence, you embody the identity of someone who is a writer. And no, writing one sentence does not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for being that kind of person. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, hands up if you have a routine, a set routine that you usually do while listening to this podcast. Maybe you listen while you're in the gym, or maybe you usually listen while you're on your commute. Now, obviously, if you're listening at the time when we're dropping this episode, most of us are in lockdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So you're not at the gym, and your commute is probably a traffic-free 10-second stroll to the kitchen table. So in that scenario, it's likely that your podcast listening habits have shifted or changed. And if that habit's changed, then I would imagine, just like me, most of your other habits are either completely out of the window or drastically re-engineered. And I'd probably take a stab that you're forming new habits now to fit this new landscape. Some good, like spending more time with your family and finally reading those books you've been meaning to get to. And some, like the daily baking of banana bread and the drinking of red wine, potentially bad. I'm just going to say potentially. Now, as the saying goes, we are creatures of habit Our habits are one of the most influential tools we have at our disposal. They become the bedrock of what we're able to do and the quality to which we are able to do it. Habits ground us, they lead us, they calm us. And according to researchers at Duke University, they also account for a whopping 40% of our daily behavior. So what happens when all our usual habits disappear or simply become impossible? Now, it's unsettling which is just a fancy way of saying a cause for either being frozen, frantic, or freaking out. And I can definitely put my hand up to just alternating between those three states a lot over the past few weeks. However, it also presents us with a massive opportunity to upgrade, to bed down new habits, atomic habits, that can become the foundations of whatever comes next. I was having a conversation on a webinar recently with two incredible colleagues of mine. And one of those said something that really struck me. They said, In times like these, we are either catastrophic or we are catalytic. We either treat everything as a catastrophe or as a catalyst for what will come next, for who we will become next, what our businesses will become next. And now habits, the habits we're able to develop during this time, they will become the catalysts to whatever you become next. So we need to improve our habits or at least get some new ones. But first, you've got to remove the bad ones, right? Which sounds easy. Well, it's easier than you think. And and my guest for this episode can help you just 1% at a time, which sounds like a little, but trust me, is a lot. 
James Clear, our guest today, is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. The central question to James's work, both in the book and on his website and his excellent, excellent newsletter, is how can we live better? Now, as I've said, our habits are the foundations of how we answer that question. We answer it and then we develop the habits to back up the behavior. So what is an atomic habit? They are small 1% improvements in behavior that over time compound into full-blown transformation. And this isn't just willpower or mind over matter. This is about removing the mental load that happens when we try and get something done every day or something new done every day and then beating yourself up when you don't. But instead creating micro habits that you can achieve easily, consistently and eventually automatically. In this episode, we talk about forming and enforcing new habits in this new environment and what four things you need to focus on to cement them. How to make the immediate outcome of your habits satisfying. This is huge because most of the habits that we want to develop, they're not particularly pleasant, hey? Sit-ups before 8 a.m., not anyone's favorite thing. Especially, especially when the greatest return, i.e. killer abs, feel like they're in the distant future. The vital practices of habit stacking and habit squashing and how to master both. Why identity always trumps motivation when the going gets tough. And first, you need to ask yourself, who is the type of person I want to become? And what would they do right now? And finally, my favorite, Warren Buffett's to-list rule. How the most dangerous things on your to-do list are the good uses of your time, using inverted commas there, and also that you're a rose bush rather than a tree. But that'll make much more sense later on. Now, I could go on with the sound bites for this episode. It's just packed with them. But perhaps the most striking insight for me is that every action you take is a vote for the type of person you want to become. I'll say that just one more time. Every action that you take is a vote for the type of person that you want to become. Now, if you sit with that one sentence long enough other than potentially regretting that last bottle of wine, it brings every decision you make from this moment on into blinding clarity. So pick a chair, a corner of the garden, a wardrobe, I don't mind whatever your life in lockdown looks like, and enjoy my atomic conversation with James Clear. Welcome to the podcast, James Clear. Hi, nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you too from isolation. This is my first one from isolation. Stuck in my spare room, which what looks like a wardrobe at the moment, which technically is a wardrobe. Yeah, you know, actually the sound might be all right in there though. I was thinking that. I was actually thinking about soundproofing it and just going with it from here on in. Yeah. I just wanted to kick off um, with a question I've been playing with a little bit at the moment, because if you want to know some great new ideas then talk to people who have great ideas what's the most influential idea that you've heard recently well one of the more interesting ones that i've heard um i don't know that i have a good way to, to describe it or name it other than to call it like multiple pathways to success but let me give me like a minute here to, to explain how it works so the idea is that life is very uncertain uh and nobody can know the future and so sometimes, you know, outcomes, they are a product of luck and randomness. 
And uh, sometimes that paralyzes people a little bit. They feel like, well, if it's just luck, like why should I try or I don't have any control over it. And what this idea is saying is even if uh, outcomes are random or even if luck plays a really significant role in life, there still is an optimal way to act regardless of the fact that it is un- uncertain. Um, so the way that it works is let's say you have like a, you got like a dice that's uh, numbered like one to six, right? And let's say you have three of those and you're going to roll them. Well, whatever those three come up as, those three die, it, the number is random, that you don't have any control over it. You're just rolling die. So let's say that you roll an, a 10 in total. So one of them is like a six and one is a three and one is a one. So six plus three plus one, you got 10. You could also change the order of it. So you could do like three plus six plus one. Um, and that would also add up to 10. And the same thing is true if you want to roll like a nine, you can roll like a six, a two, and a one, or a two, a six, and a one. However, there's one difference for rolling a nine, which is there's one situation where all of them have to be threes, three, three, and three. And it doesn't matter if you change the order because they're all still threes. So uh, what that means that there is that there's one situation where there are fewer pathways to getting a nine. You don't, you don't have as many options because you can't rearrange them. It's still the same as it was before. And uh, the punchline of this is because of that, because there are more ways to get a 10, you could rearrange the numbers more ways. There are more ways to get that outcome. You're about 8% more likely to roll a 10 than you are a nine. And uh, again, this process is totally random. You don't have total, you don't have control over it, but you're more likely to get a 10 simply because there are more pathways to success if we're defining success as rolling a 10. Well, that, I think that core idea can be applied to a lot of things in life. Um, let's say you are writing a book and you want it to be a bestseller. Well, you don't know if the outcome is uncertain. You don't know you're going to be able to make that happen. But, uh, let's say instead of doing five interviews on podcasts about the book, you do 50 you're trying to create more pathways to a successful outcome. You don't know which one of those, but maybe one of them goes viral or blows up and you know becomes the thing that puts the book on the map. And so as much as possible, implementing that idea of multiple pathways to success, it actually, it, it's still luck whether one of them takes off or not, but it's kind of in your control because you're increasing your exposure to good luck. You're, you're creating more surface area for good things to happen. And so, I don't know, I've been toying with that idea a lot, thinking about how you could apply it to relationships or um, health and fitness. Like you you could say maybe that like doing yoga is maybe something kind of like that because it's increasing flexibility and increasing range of motion. And so there are maybe now more pathways for you to be in a stable position than there was before. And so maybe you reduce the odds of injury. Um so that, that idea of creating multiple pathways to a successful outcome, I think there's probably a lot of ways to apply it. And it's certainly one of the more interesting ideas that I've heard recently. And so just just exploring that a little bit, is that is it consistency? Is it, you know, volume, the amount of times you show up in a in a period of time? Or is it innovation, you know, multitude of different ways to show up? I think it's more about the different ways in this case. Consistency is, of course, incredibly important and it's sort of its own thing. Um, this is Here's a way I've been describing sort of a related idea that maybe clarifies it a little bit more. A lot of people say things like, uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Right? If, you, if you lose the basket, you lose the whole thing. And that's kind of the idea behind diversification, like diversify your portfolio, kind of spread your money around. You don't want to lose it all on one bad bet or whatever. Um, 
However, there's also a, a paradox with risk. There's like a flip side that's also risky, which is don't put your eggs in too many baskets because then you got to manage them all. And doing things halfway is actually kind of risky too. If you're if you've got ten baskets and you're giving each one of those ten percent of your time, it's really hard for any one of those for you to excel and beat somebody in that particular field who's giving like you know ninety percent of their focus to that basket. Um, so doing things halfway is risky as well. So you sort of have this like competing tension, and I think what you're asking here is getting at both of them. So. I think you probably want some main basket where you keep like 80% of your focus and that that's like your primary thing. It's where you try to excel. That's where the consistency piece is really crucial, but you also want to have maybe 20%, you know, kind of spread out in like five other baskets or something where you're sort of diversified. And that's kind of what I was mentioning a minute ago with this multiple pathways to success. You want to have like at least a little bit of exposure to something good happening for you. So you keep your hand in, in some side projects, but you still say, stay focused on the main thing. Um, and I think that's a way to try to get the benefits of both to get the benefits of consistency and focus and really excelling in a particular area, but then to not be so focused on it that you're actually kind of brittle because the world is dynamic. And if you only have one thing that you do well and the world changes, all of a sudden you can be kind of like left out in the cold. And so you, you want to have a little bit of diversification, a little bit of these multiple pathways to success and uh, a core focus where you can really excel. I had a mentor once and he said this brilliant question that he would ask me, which was, what experiments can you run? You know, when you're stuck on something and she said, you've got all your eggs in one basket, you're just going hard at this basket. What experiments can you run right now? Name three or four experiments that you can quickly and easily run to you know increase your your avenues to success that's a great idea and it's the that kind of gets to that core question you know like you're you're sort of yeah you're running experiments to see is one of them going to take off it's kind of the, i think another core principle that we're sort of circling here is that it's much easier to tell if something is working after you've tried it than it is to predict if it will work before you it's been tried and so it's very hard to like come up with the ideal plan or ideal strategy in theory, but it's much easier to kind of craft it and let it emerge as time goes on. And so your mentor mentioning like what experiments can you run? That's a way to get a little exposure, get some feedback. And then once you find out, oh, actually this idea is working much better in practice than the others, then you can sort of double down on the things that are that seem to be more worthwhile. And there's also a, a lightness of energy to it. When you when you think when you come at it from an experimental perspective, you're not you're not holding onto it so tightly. It doesn't have to work. Right. You don't have to get it perfect from the start. You know, like you don't have to judge yourself for for having a bad idea in the beginning. That wasn't even the point. The point was just to experiment and to get feedback. Um, you can play and actually enjoy the process. Now, you know, obviously, at the time of recording today, we're we're a few weeks into COVID nineteen isolation. And there was there's something that when I was doing my research, there was something I read that you wrote, and I think it was on your Instagram page. And it said, in times of uncertainty, your habits can ground you. And that really, it really hit me because, you know, for the first couple of weeks of this period of time, running, I think everyone was running around just doing the next urgent thing, sorting out business, sorting out family, getting new structures in place, pivot, whatever it looked like. And then the dust kind of settled a little bit. 
and the next urgent thing became further and further apart. And suddenly we're in this position where we're trying to reestablish habits or start some new habits in a new environment without the cues that we're used to. I want to let's just kick off talking about habits with is there any advice in this particular situation that you have about how to start introducing or reestablishing habits where there's no cues like all your usual cues have gone? Well, anytime the environment changes in a big way, behavior changes in a big way, right? And so a lot of people are feeling this experience of the environment changing right now where they um, they switched, you know, they didn't work from home before and then now all of a sudden their kitchen table is their office. Um, and so when the environment shifts, you two things are kind of simultaneously happening. Um, on the one hand, you are, as you mentioned, losing you are losing the cues that you had before. Um, and then on the other hand, you are gaining new ones that you didn't have exposure to. And so what you may find is that because you're in this new environment, all of a sudden different behaviors are now obvious and available and visible and easy to do that weren't before. So, you know, if your kitchen table is your new office desk, well, all of a sudden maybe the pantry is like right around the corner and it's very easy to snack. Whereas that wasn't the case previously, if you were, you know, driving to an office or something. Um, and uh, so anyway, the, the core principle, regardless of that, uh, your question is like, how do you, you've lost these cues, how do you pick up your old behaviors, how do you reclaim a lost habit? Broadly speaking, uh, there are about four different things that you want to happen if you want to build a new habit. And you don't need all four to happen every time, but the more of these that you have working in your favor, the more likely it is that you're going to stick with, with a new routine. So uh, the first thing is you want your good habits to be obvious. You want to be available, visible, easy to see. You know, you want the healthy food to be on the counter. You want, uh, you know, for example, when I wanted to build a reading habit, I moved Audible to the home screen on my phone so that audiobooks would be the first thing I'd see. So same story there. Make it obvious. The second thing is you want it to be attractive. You want it to be like compelling or motivating or interesting to do. The third thing is you want it to be easy. The easier, more convenient, frictionless a habit is the more likely you are to stick to it. You know, if your habit is to read uh, one book a week, well, that's a lot harder than like reading one page a day. And so reading one page a day is a habit you're much more likely to stick to. And then, um, and then finally, you want it to be satisfying. You want it to be enjoyable or pleasurable in some way. You need like a, a positive emotion associated with the habit because otherwise your brain doesn't have that much reason to remember it or to repeat it in the future. You know, if, if behaviors are followed by a consequence or something that's just fairly neutral, then it's kind of like, well, why would I do that again in the future? So those four things are sort of the, the rough overview of what you're looking to do. You want to make it obvious, you want to make it attractive, you want to make it easy, and you want to make it satisfying. Um, and of course, I'm happy to dive into detail there and talk about, about each of those. But those principles are what you want to return to whenever you've got this big change in environment where it feels like, oh, I've, I've suddenly lost all the habits I had before. Let's, let's dive into making it satisfying for a second because you know some habits that you're looking to put in place for example getting up every morning going for a run or or i don't know 20 push-ups 100 sit-ups they're they're not immediately satisfying they become satisfying you know they create their own craving in a way once you've done them enough times you feel great you want to keep doing them but how do you put in place rewards when the inherent reward isn't in there at the beginning yeah, that's a great question. And actually, I should say, I think this is perhaps the best way to distinguish between what is a good habit and what is a bad habit. And that is that 
Behaviors produce multiple outcomes across time. So broadly speaking, let's call it like an immediate outcome and an ultimate outcome. And for bad habits, the immediate outcome of a bad habit is often kind of favorable. Like the immediate outcome of eating a donut or a cookie is it's sweet, it's sugary, it's tasty, it's enjoyable. It's only the ultimate outcome if you keep doing that for you know six months or two years or whatever that's unfavorable. Same story for smoking a cigarette. Like the immediate outcome of smoking a cigarette might be you get to socialize with friends outside the office or you curb your nicotine craving or you reduce stress. Um, it's only the ultimate outcome that's unhealthy. But with good habits, it's often the reverse, which is the immediate outcome, like the immediate outcome, as you mentioned, of like going to the gym or doing 20 push-ups, isn't really a whole lot. Your body looks the same in the mirror at the end of the night. The scale hasn't really changed. If anything, maybe you're a little bit sore. Um, it's only if you keep working out for a year or two years or whatever that you get those benefits. And so this is sort of a hallmark of any compounding process, which is the greatest returns are delayed. You know, early on, you've got all this effort, but you're kind of at the bottom of the curve. You haven't hit that hockey stick growth yet. And you got to wait a long time for those outcomes to accumulate. So, uh, the answer to your question, how do we make it satisfying? How do we deal with that mismatch between the immediate outcome and the ultimate outcome? And I think one way to do it is you want to visualize your progress. And this is where strategies like measurement or a habit tracker, uh, are useful. So as an example, my parents like to swim, but again, if they, you know, every time they get out of the pool, their body looks exactly the same as when they got in. So there's no evidence that the workout was worth it. But my dad has this little pocket calendar where he, he's got like every day, it's got a little monthly calendar on it. And then, uh, he puts an X on each day that they do a swimming workout. And it's a little thing. It's a short thing. It only takes a minute, but it visualizes the progress. It gives him a signal that, oh, I showed up and I did the right thing today. And um, being able to see that progress can be very motivating in the moment. And it also helps reinforce that you're being the kind of person that you want to be. And so uh, whether it's a habit tracker or, you know, for me, when I do my workouts, I have an actual exercise journal where I write down each set. Um, uh, if you have a book, like being able to see the bookmark get deeper in, or if you use like Kindle, it will show you at the bottom of the screen, like 42% red. Um, any type of progress tracker like that is, has sort of an inherently motivating quality to it where it helps you remind you of your progress and gets you to show up again and again. Um, you can also do a second thing, which is layering an actual like reward on top of the habit. And sometimes this is particularly useful for what I would call habits of avoidance, which are things that you're trying to not do. Like, uh, I'm trying to build a habit of not drinking alcohol. Uh, or, uh, we're trying to not go out to eat and, you know, uh, cook more meals in or things like that. I had one reader who, uh, they wanted to do that. They wanted to cook more meals at home. And it was just like kind of inherently not motivating. It's not satisfying, you know, like all, all that happens is we don't go anywhere. Uh, so we, we don't really have much benefit to it. So they created a little bank account and labeled it trip to Europe. And then every time they stayed at home to make dinner, instead of going out to eat, they would transfer $50 over to the account. And then at the end of the year, they put the money toward the trip. And the reason I like strategies like that is they, it gives them something that actually they could visualize in the moment. They, instead of seeing a habit tracker, they could see the bank account increase a little bit. So anything that you can do that can visualize your progress uh, can help m increase the satisfaction that you're feeling in the moment while you're waiting for those long-term rewards to accumulate. That actually 
just beautifully answered my next question, which was I find I find that there are useful rewards for me and and not so useful rewards. And mine used to be a sense of achievement, you know, a sense of completion. I'm a great person to give a deadline to. I'm a great person to give a budget to. But as life got busier and, you know, the business grew and family emerges, I had to re- I had to work on replacing that sense of achievement with a sense of progress as my reward, which didn't immediately feel more satisfying. You know, it's when you want to get something done and you just see a little bit of progress, it doesn't feel as great. But as you mentioned, if you can track it in a way where you can actually feel yourself getting closer, then that's been really, really useful. This is a good part or good time to discuss a concept that in the book, I refer to it as identity-based habits. And the core idea is that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And so whenever you're building a new habit, you're casting votes for that kind of identity. You're reinforcing that type of person. So, you know, um, in a sense, your habits are how you like embody a particular identity. So every morning that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized or anytime that you do one push up, you embody the identity of someone who works out. Or if you write one sentence, you embody the identity of someone who is a writer. And, you know, like, no, writing one sentence does not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for being that kind of person. And I I think that's one of the most powerful things that small habits do. And it ties directly to what you're mentioning here, which is for a habit to be satisfying, for it to be enjoyable and you to find some sense of achievement or purpose or whatever it is that you're, you're trying to get out of it. It helps if you can tie it to your desired identity. So, um, you know, you mentioned a couple identities just a minute ago without probably without even realizing it. Things like I'm the type of person that's good to give a deadline to. Right. Like that's that's a, an element of your identity that you take pride in. And so if you can tie the behaviors to that piece um, of your of your identity, then it becomes more likely that you're able to stick to it. And this becomes, this is like a little hard for certain, in certain situations. Uh, one example is like the military. So someone's been in the military for a few years, a big part of their identity might be like, I'm a soldier, but then they leave the military and it's like, well, I feel like I lost part of myself. And so what can be helpful is to reframe your identity so that you've got like some new entry points to it. Like rather than saying, I'm a soldier, you could say, I'm a good teammate or I'm the type of person who's reliable, or I finish what I start. And those are ways of defining your identity that uh, can translate to a business context. So now you're out of the military and you're in a job, but hey, guess what? You can still be a great teammate and you can still finish what you start and so on. So um, I, I think one maybe question to ask yourself if you're listening to this is, what is my desired identity? Like who, who am I trying to become? And then how can I uh, phrase that or reframe that in a way that my habits are, it's clear to me how my current habits are building toward my desired identity. And maybe another version of that question that people might find helpful is, can my current habits carry me to my desired future? Because if they can't, then something needs to change. You got some misalignment and your desired future can be both the results that you want, but but also it can be the type of person that you want to become. And uh, I think often it's more useful to focus on that identity that you're trying to build than uh, on the outcomes that, that you want. Because if you can become that kind of person, if you can foster your desired identity, then often the results kind of show up as a byproduct. Um, so anyway, all of that, I think, is related to this conversation of 
how the habits become satisfying? Well, ultimately, I think they become satisfying if they reinforce your desired identity, if they help you become the type of person you wish to become. That that one bit there was a was a total flip switch moment for me when I first when I first read it. That the whole identity driven because you think about developing a habit and you think, okay, what is the habit? What is what's the process behind the habit? What do I need to do? And when you flip it and say, you know, what what it, who's the type of person I want to become? Who's the person who's already achieving those results? And and what would they do right now? And for some reason, for me, the answer comes much faster than, you know, what would that person do right now? Well, they would, they would do this. Okay. Well, well, there's a habit I should put into place. Why does that help so much? Why is it so much easier to do that than it is just to come up with a habit and and move forward? Well, I think I, I, who knows, uh, you know, I, I, maybe this isn't a good answer. I'm not sure, but it's the best answer that I have right now, which is, I think that questions and, and in this sense, identities tend to be more flexible and adaptable than advice. Advice is actually kind of brittle because it's context dependent. So like, even if you talk to somebody who did exactly what you want to do, you, you want to build a million dollar business and they did it two years ago, the, the way that they did it and the timing that they did it in the business they had, like it, that's all context dependent. And so they could tell you exactly what they did but it might not apply because maybe the world has changed over the last two years, or maybe your strengths and skill sets are different, or maybe your resources are different or whatever. Um, questions, however, good questions can kind of transcend context. They can adapt. So uh, in the case of identity, one of the examples I love, uh, and I, I included it in the book, is there's this woman I came across in my research who uh, she ended up losing a lot of weight. And one of the ways that she did it was she carried this question around with her all all day long, which was what would a healthy person do? So, you know, when she was going to her next meeting would a healthy person walk eight blocks or would they take a cab? Uh, when she's getting ready to order lunch, would a healthy person order this item or that item? And like, she could just kind of take that question around to different spots in her life and it would serve her each time. Whereas if you were trying to remember exactly what advice to do, you have to eat these foods, not that one, or you have to, you know, whatever. It only applies in certain contexts. So I think having the core identity in your mind, it gives you a framework to live by rather than a set of rules to remember. And uh, in that sense, I think I think it makes it easier uh, or more clear what you should do in the moment. It's uh, it's a way for you to see more clearly how to apply the ideas to your own life. And as you said before, it's a step away from perfect. It's not a perfect rule to either achieve or not achieve, to get right or to get wrong. It's a, if I was this person, what would I do right now? It's Yeah, rather than being perfect, it's like, what is relevant, right? Like what, exactly. what, is, what, what feels right to me um, rather than what is like the right answer in the universe. I mean, I don't know if anybody knows that, but we often try to, we strive so much for perfection that we kind of get in our own way. And so if you can just do what is relevant rather than what is perfect, that often serves you better. Talk to me, talk to me about habit stacking. So this is a core idea that comes from uh, research that BJ Fogg has done. He's a professor at Stanford. And his idea is that one of the great ways to build a habit is to take a new one and stack it on top of an old one to, to kind of like tie them together. So let's say you already have a habit that you like um, uh, and that you do each day, like making a cup of coffee in the morning. And you've got a new habit that you want to build. And it's like, uh, I would like to start meditating. So what his little formula is, what BJ's approach is, is he says, um, after I make my cup of coffee, 
I will meditate for 60 seconds. So you create this little link, this bond between your old habit and your new one. And so essentially what you're doing is you're stacking these habits on top of each other. You're using your current habit as the cue or as the trigger to start the new one. And uh, it can work really well. You can create these little chains and sort of use them all throughout your day. You know, you could imagine having like a little morning productivity stack that would be like, um, after I make my cup of coffee, I will meditate for 60 seconds. After I meditate for 60 seconds, I will write my to-do list for the day. After I write my to-do list for the day, I will select the most important item and begin working on that. Or you can have a stack when you get into the office or at the end of the day as power down routine or whatever. But the thing that's powerful, I think about it is that it gives you a very clear space for your new habit to live in your life. You know, a lot of the time we sort of wake up and we think, oh, I hope I feel motivated to work out today or to write today or to journal or whatever it is that we're trying to do. And this is a way to have like a clear place for that habit to live. Uh, it's, it's not like, oh, I hope I feel like it. It's, oh, no, this is just what I do after I make my cup of coffee. Um, and so I think that strategy can be a, a great one to use if you're trying to insert a new behavior into your life. I just want to pick up on one of the things you said just at the very beginning of that, which is, you know, after I make my cup of coffee, I meditate for 60 seconds. And that actually answers, I think, one of the questions that I had for you, which is, you know, at the moment, particularly, I'm finding a lot of our habits are having to be um, squashed, become almost micro habits. And whereas might have meditated for 20 minutes, now it's five minutes, you know, might have had an hour in the day to exercise, now it's 30 minutes outdoors, you know, might have had, I don't know, an hour to get a certain project done, now we've got 15 minutes before swapping over the kids with our partners. Can a ha- can you squash a habit down? Can, can you take something that's useful and, and do it in a quarter of the time and still call it a useful habit? Yeah, it, it's a great question. So I, I think the, the general answer is yes. But there is there is kind of an interesting question here, which is uh, I heard a, a good example the other day, or I'm kind of adapting it for this case. I think it illustrates a good point, which is let's say that you're making a recipe, you're making a dish. Say you're making some, I don't know, I love Indian food. So let's say you're making tikka masala or something, right? So you, you could have a whole, an entire bowl, all right? Uh, or you could have a spoonful, and either way, you know if, how the dish tastes. You know if it tastes good. But if you only have a single grain of rice, that actually doesn't tell you anything about the tikka masala, right? Like that's, that's actually too small for it to be useful. And so there is probably a limit there. It's like your entire habit, the 45-minute session, that's like eating the full bowl. And maybe the, the five-minute version, maybe that's like having a spoonful. Or the two-minute version, maybe that's like having a little taste. Um, but the 10-second version, uh, maybe that's like a grain of rice, and that actually is, is too small to be useful. Um, so I, I do think they're probably, and it, of course, that scale changes for, for whatever habit we're talking about. But I, So I do think there's a limit, I guess, is I, I just want to say that. However, generally speaking, I, I like to use what I call the two-minute rule. And I think it's a great way to start or to scale down almost any habit that you're working on. So the two-minute rule says take whatever habit you're trying to build and you scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So read 30 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And sometimes people resist that a little bit because they're like, okay, you know, I know the real goal isn't just to take my yoga mat out, right? Mm-hmm. I know and I'm it's missing that sense of achievement we were talking about. Yeah, it's like, you know, if I if this is some kind of mental trick and I know it's a trick, I'm like, why would I fall for it? And I get why people feel that way. But um, 
I still think it's very useful. And I, there's a, a story that I mentioned in Atomic Habits. This guy, his name's Mitch. And he ended up losing a ton of weight. Um, and when he first started getting into shape, he went to the gym and he had a little rule for himself where for the first six weeks, he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he'd get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous, right? It sounds silly. You're like, this is not going to get the guy the results that he wants. But if you take a step back, what you realize is that he was mastering the art of showing up and he was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. And I think this is the deep truth about habits that is probably useful to keep in mind in times like these, especially when you have to scale everything down, which is the truth is a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? It has to become the standard in your life before you can optimize or scale it up. And if you lose that standard, if you lose, if you are no longer mastering the art of showing up, you don't have anything to work with. There's no raw material to, to improve or to, to refine. So in that sense, I think scaling your habits down is actually quite useful uh, because it helps maintain the standard in your life. Um, and if you can still master the art of showing up, even when circumstances are not ideal, I think that comes back a lot to the identity-based habits concept we talked about earlier. You know, it's like, all right, situation's not ideal, circumstances are crazy, I don't have as much time as I did before, but I'm still the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. You know, I got those five push-ups in, or I'm still a writer, I wrote one sentence today. And, you know, of course, you would love to be able to do more, but if you're able to show up even on the bad days, I think that gives you a lot of confidence on the good days because you've really cast a lot of votes for being that kind of person. I just want to tap back into that identity piece again, because I just think it's, it's so core. One of the things that I've noticed that I've started doing, and I, I don't know if it's a good idea or a bad idea yet, is using someone else's identity and habit stack, almost leveraging someone else's identity. So my husband, for example, he's super healthy, gets up at 5am, does his workout every day, eats healthily five times a day, and I'm, I'm the opposite. You know, I'll grab a cracker on my way through the kitchen. And I've started tying, now that we're stuck at home together, I've started tying my habits into his. So, you know, I'll come out when he's having lunch. And if he's having something healthy, it's really hard for me just to have a piece of toast while he's sat there with something healthy. You know, he does his workout in the morning. He comes back. He literally passes the baton to me. And then, you know, then I'll go and do mine. Is that... Is that useful or does it tie you to something not concrete as in when that trigger point disappears and we go our separate ways, you haven't built it into your identity enough? Is it a good idea or a bad idea? Well, uh, first I should say, um, you know, everything that I'm sharing and all the things I've written in Atomic Habits, they're not the only way to think about things. They're just the way I think about them, right? So it's just one way to approach it. So I would say if something's working for you, you and specifically and just you in general, anybody listening to this, if it's working for you, then it is useful. So, so there's not, you know, don't let, uh, don't let somebody else like tell you what to, what to do if you find something that's, that's working for, uh, for your circumstances. Um, that said, I think what you're getting at is an important point and, uh, an important question. And it, what it made me think of is the influence and the power of the social environment on our habits. And this is, I believe it's chapter nine in atomic habits It's called the, the influence of family and friends on your habits. And so I, I knew the social environment was important because I, you know, I wrote a whole chapter on it, 
But this is a topic that since the book has come out, I think is even more important than I realized. Um, the, we are all part of multiple tribes. So some of those tribes are large, like what it means to be American or what it means to be Australian, what it means to be French. Uh, some of those tribes are small, like what it means to be a neighbor on your street or a member of your local gym or a volunteer at the, the you know, neighborhood school. And each of those tribes, each of those groups, large and small, they have a set of behaviors that are normal there, a set of expectations for what you do when you're in that space and how you act. And, uh, you know, take, for example, say you move into a new neighborhood and you walk outside and you see your neighbors uh, mowing their lawn and trimming their hedges and doing landscaping. And you think, oh, I need to mow the lawn. And then you stick to that habit for like, you know, 30 years or however long you live in that environment. And partially you do it because it feels good to have a clean lawn, but mostly it feels good to have a clean lawn because you don't want to be judged by the other people in the neighborhood. And so it's actually the social expectation that helps get you to stick with that behavior. And so I think the punchline here, uh, whether we're talking about your habit, uh, your uh, new habit of eating lunch with your husband or a, a bigger picture tribe that you're a part of is you want to join groups to join tribes, to be around people where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, if it's normal in that space or in that tribe, then it becomes much more attractive for you to stick to it. Remember, I, I mentioned early on, you want your habits to be kind of four things, obvious, attractive, easy, and satisfying. We've talked a lot about making it easy, making it satisfying, even making it a little bit obvious. Um, but making it attractive, the social environment plays a big role in that. And if other people around you are doing behaviors, it becomes more attractive for you to do them because it's a signal that like, hey, I get it. I fit in, you know, like I belong. And if you don't have that, if you're running against the grain of the social expectations of the group, you're trying to do something, but the people around you don't want to do it. Um, that's actually a very hard place to maintain habits because in the short run, you might be able to overpower your desire to belong, or you might be able to overpower the criticism or the, you know, the looks that you get from other people. But in the long run, I mean, it's a core need that we all have to belong. And so if people have to choose between, I get the habits that I want to have, um, but I don't really fit in. I kind of get cast out and ostracized a little bit, or I have habits I don't really love, but I get to fit in and I, I get praised from the group most people would choose to belong rather than to be lonely. But the desire to belong often overpowers the desire to improve. Now, thankfully, you don't have to have the two conflict. And that, that's kind of what you're, you are a good example of here, talking about having lunch with your husband, where it's like, all right, I know the desire that I want to have or the, the behavior that I want to have. I want to eat healthier and be more consistent about it. So I'm going to hang out with somebody who I know that's more normal for them. And then I kind of like soak up a little bit of that quality as well. So um, that core idea of you want to join a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. I think you can apply that to all kinds of things, big and small, like eating lunch with your husband and big, like, you know, what city do I live in or what group do I join or whatever. So it's a, it's a very powerful force for getting habits to stick. And again, fits with that identity piece, which is, you know, who is living the life that I want to live or embodying what I want to embody. What would they do right now? Either by literally, you know, standing next to them and doing it with them or watching what they do and trying to emulate it in your own life. Right. I did that when I was an entrepreneur, you know, like when I got started with my business, I didn't know anybody 
who was an entrepreneur. I didn't have any entrepreneurs in my family. So over the first three or six months, um, I, I put together a list, a spreadsheet of a bunch of people who were doing the thing I wanted to do. They had, they had that identity that I wanted to have. They were a full-time entrepreneur. They were running a successful business. And, uh, gradually I emailed all of them over the next, you know, six months or so. And let's say I emailed a hundred people. Most of them didn't get back to me. Maybe 30 did, but I set up Skype calls and chatted with each of them. And, um, you know, then six months later, now I know 30 people who are doing the thing that I wanted to do. Suddenly it feels much more normal when you're surrounded by other people who have that desired identity. It goes from being something that is aspirational to being something that is, uh, normal to being something that is, uh, um, achievable. That's, uh, seems much more typical for you. And so I do, I do think there's kind of a powerful force there as well. And if you can layer these things together, if you can take a variety of the strategies that we're talking about, you got the two minute rule, you've got the social environment piece, you have the identity based habits element and you start putting them together, then you can come up kind of with a powerful system for, uh, for establishing and maintaining change. I want to I want to just segue a second and go into force elimination. There was there's something that you have written about called Warren Buffett's two list rule, which again was one of those moments where I thought that is really easy to apply and seems obvious, but I've I have not yet done it. Walk walk me through that. So the story was told to me from a friend who was talking to uh, this guy that was Warren Buffett's private pilot. He was, you know, drove, flew his, uh, flew his jet. And uh, the, supposedly the story is that, you know, at some point he was talking to, to Buffett and saying like, oh, you should buy this new plane or whatever, you know, upgrade to this new jet. I'd love to fly it. And, um, you know, at some point they were going to upgrade in the next, I don't know, five years or something or 10 years. And he was like, look, if you're still flying for me in 10 years, then I kind of feel like I failed you as a boss. Like you should be growing, moving on to the next, you know, the next thing. And, uh, he was like, tried this exercise, which is, I want you to write down the 25 things that you want to achieve, you know, over the, the rest of your career. And you, I should say, as a side note, I think you can do this for pretty much any timeline, 25 things you want to achieve this week, 25 things you want to get done this year, whatever. But anyway, the, this guy goes off and he writes down this list of 25 and he comes back and uh, supposedly Buffett says something like, uh, all right, now I want you to go ahead and uh, look at the list again and circle your top five. So the guy takes a minute and does that. And uh, he's like, okay, so those are your five priorities. Those are your five like, most important things. Tell me what your plan is for the other 20. And he was like, well, you know, uh, I'll focus on these five most of the time during the workday and whatnot, whatever. And then uh, the other 20 you know, I can do on nights or weekends or when I got free time or, you know, get stuck on a, pro a main project or whatever. And, uh, supposedly Buffett was saying something like, uh, well, no, 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 I think that's all wrong. Like you gotta, your, that other list items six through 25, that's your never do under any circumstance list. And what was interesting to me about it when I, I started thinking about it and the, the punchline I think is the most dangerous items on your to-do list are the ones that are good uses of time, but not great uses of time because you can always rationalize them. You know, like let's say you make a list and it's, you know, seven things that you need to get done this week. Well, actually like items four and five, like those are actually the worst ones because you can talk yourself into them where you're like, Oh yeah, actually this is kind of important to me, but actually all it's doing is preventing you from working on items one and two. And so this idea that like the most dangerous things in your to-do list are actually the good things, but not the great things, I think is something that 
especially as your career progresses or as you get more responsibilities in life, your family grows, whatever it is. Um, the problem with increasing obligations, with increasing responsibilities is that everything has a trade-off and you have less time than you had before. And so your ability to say no to things, your ability to eliminate and edit things needs to improve over time. You can almost view your life as like this big surface area and each additional day that you live, it increases the surface area for new opportunities to come your way. Some random person sends you an email about something cool or a new business idea comes in from a friend who mentioned something or whatever. But like each day is kind of bringing new things into the fold. The natural order of any to-do list is to grow. The natural order of any, any life is to come across more opportunities as that surface area increases. And so if you don't have the ability to prune and edit, if you don't have the ability to, to trim away those opportunities, then you're going to lose the ability to focus on the things that matter the most. Um, another great analogy that I like for this is like a rose bush. So if you talk to any gardener, the way to really get a rose bush to flourish is you have to prune away some of the branches. You have to prune away some of the buds that could actually become a flower, but you prune away those to create the space so that the bush can, um, you know, the, a few blood buds can fully blossom, can really flourish because we sort of think about our productivity. We, we almost think about ourselves more like a tree. Like I'll just grow taller and wider and add more branches. And like, I can get bigger and bigger and take on more and more. But actually I think our productivity is more like a rose bush, which is they don't grow uh, like up, up, up and out, out, out the way trees do. They're mo much more confined. They have like a, you know, maybe they're only a few feet tall. They're, they're kind of constrained. And the same thing is true for your productivity. You know, like you only have those 24 hours. And so you have to protect it by pruning away some of those good, potentially flowering buds so that you can let the few things fully blossom. And that I think is what that two list strategy or that kind of 25, five rule, uh, is trying to get at, you know, it's like, how can I focus on the things that really matter? And, um, unfortunately set aside some things that, you know, if I had infinite time, it would be fun to pursue, but that's not how life works. And so I have to, I have to, um, manage these trade-offs by remaining focused. You know, what I love about that story is exactly what you just, what you just honed in on the fact that the other 20, they don't become, you know, get up, that's my get up at 5am and work on that list. Or, you know, that's my, when I have some time list, it actually becomes the avoid at all costs list because those 20 become, they become the energy sucks. You know, they become the monkeys on your back saying, you still haven't done me, you still haven't done me. And they also become the distractions where you think, oh, I'll just get started on that for that elusive sense of achievement we've talked about, where I feel like I've at least made progress on something. Whereas just letting them go altogether frees up so much bandwidth. It's a hard choice to make up front, but once you do it, it, it actually is quite freeing. Um, yeah. And I, I don't think also like the fact that this is hard or difficult to do, I, I find it difficult at least. Maybe some people are much better at it than I am. Um, but I, the fact that it's hard, I don't think means you need to judge yourself for it. You know, like it's actually great that you're coming up, that you have a big list, that you have a lot of things that excite you or that you're curious about, that um, you're able to generate new ideas. That, that's a really, really powerful, wonderful quality. It's just that you need to um, temper that or balance it with the ability to refine and edit as well. And I think you, 
you sort of need both of those if you want to get really exceptional results. I want to touch very, very quickly on getting rid of cues to habits that you don't want. You know, we've talked about introducing new cues, but then there's a bunch of habits we know. I mean, social media scanning being one of the main ones that we know gets in our way and removing the cues that trigger us to do that. And I had heard, I don't know if it's true, but I had heard that you have your assistant change the passwords to all your social accounts every Sunday evening. Is that true? <laughs> all right. So a couple things here. Um, first, one of the challenges with breaking a bad habit is that it's already formed and because it's already formed, it's automatic and mindless. And, uh, whenever you see the cue, the craving arises automatically. Like if you see a donut sitting on the counter, you just think, oh, that looks good. I want to have a bite of it. It's not, there is no space between seeing it and then deciding, does it look good or does it not look good? Like it's already, it's already automatic. It's already happening. So because the craving arises so rapidly, so instantaneously, one of the best ways to curtail or eliminate a bad habit is to reduce exposure to the cue, to not see the donut in the first place. You can't, it's very hard. Uh, I'm not going to say it's impossible. It is possible, but it's, it's a long process and difficult. Uh, it's difficult to learn to hate donuts when you already love them, but it's much easier to not be exposed to them. So that's what some of this is getting at, this idea of reducing exposure to cues. So if you're trying to stick to a diet, don't follow food blogs on Instagram. If you um, want to spend less money on electronics, don't read the latest tech review blogs. Um, it's like unsubscribe from emails. So that it, uh, you know, if you don't get emails from Amazon or see your favorite uh, website, if you're trying to not shop online as much, right? Like don't expose yourself to the temptations you're trying to resist as much as possible. Removing that is a very helpful thing. Another example, one that I found useful recently, I have a, um, you know, I'm like everybody else. I've, I've got my phone and if it's next to me on my desk, then I'll look at it every three minutes just cause it's there. But I have a home office. So I have this kind of rule for myself where I try to leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. And I don't always do it, but probably, I don't know, 80, 90% of the time, uh, it's probably out in, in another room. And what I notice is that if it's next to me, I'm checking it all the time. But if it's in another room, it's only like 30 seconds away, but I never go get it. And so I'm like, well, did I want it or not? You know, like to a certain, in one sense, I wanted it bad enough to check it all the time if it was next to me. But in another sense, I never want it so badly that I'll work 30 seconds to go get it. And there are a lot of habits that are kind of surprisingly like that. You know, it's, this isn't going to work for like a true addiction, but for many behaviors that are mindless or distractions or time wasting, unproductive, you'd be surprised how much it can be curtailed um, or some cases totally eliminated just by not being exposed to the cue. You don't really want it. It's just like it gets your attention for a few minutes and you find yourself doing it even if you didn't set out to do that. So removing the cue can be a powerful strategy in that sense. And uh, yes, to answer your question, um, I for a year and a half when I was writing Atomic Habits, every Monday, my assistant would log me out of Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, reset all the passwords. I would write all week. On Friday, she would send me the passwords. I could log in, uh, use social media over the weekend. And then on Monday, we'd do it all over again. And, um, that was how I lived like a year and a half of my life. And, uh, it was, it was helpful because I needed to be focused on finishing the book and I was, you know, getting distracted and wasting too much time, uh, browsing social media. So 
any of those strategies, uh, anything you can do to reduce exposure to the, the trigger, the cue that prompts your bad habit is probably a, a helpful and useful thing. Um, I've even noticed it for like, if I open up the fridge and I see uh, a six pack of beer, let's say it's like in the door or it's like on the, the front shelf where I can like see it right when I open up the door, I'll have a beer with dinner just cause it's there. But if I tuck it down low, it's like in the back of the fridge, like underneath the shelf, I can't see it when I open the door. Sometimes I'll forget to bend down and look at, I'll forget that it's in there. It'll be like a month and I'll be like, oh, I didn't even remember we had that. And so simply not being exposed to it uh, is often enough to, to get the habit to subside to a certain degree. You're reminding me of my water bottle, which sounds really strange, but I had, <laughs> I had a water bottle that you tip up to drink and I was finding I just wasn't. I just wasn't drinking out of it. And then I bought one of those water bottles with a little sippy straw. <laughs> and suddenly I was drinking water like a beast. And I was thinking, how lazy am I? Like, how lazy do, how lazy do I have to be to, to avoid water because I have to lift my arm? <laughs> it's remarkable. It speaks to, there, there's a concept that I mentioned in Atomic Habits that is like, um, the, I, it's called the law of least effort, uh, but the, it's it's a principle actually that comes from physics. But the, the core idea is if someone's deciding between two relatively similar actions, they naturally gravitate to the one that takes the least amount of effort or energy, which obviously, like why, if you could get the same outcome, why would you spend more energy doing something else? But what you end up finding is that becomes like kind of a larger principle for how we live our lives. We tend to follow the path of least resistance, the behaviors that have the least amount of friction associated with them are the ones that we tend to slide into and do more frequently. And the behaviors that have more steps and more friction associated with them, they are, they tend to be avoided. And so there, there's a, a larger concept here, a more practical application, I think, which I refer to as environment design. But the idea is you want to reshape your environment to make the good habits, the path of least resistance. And the more that you're surrounded by, it sounds silly that things like, oh, I have a sippy straw rather than having to tip the water bottle up. But any single change like that is not going to radically transform your life. But you can imagine the collective impact of making a dozen or 30 or 50 changes that are like that. All of a sudden, you're living and operating in an environment where the good choices are the easy ones. And that's, that's what you want as much as possible. And you'll find that habits are much easier to stick with if you're kind of optimizing and priming the environment uh, to make those actions easy. I'm going to just pick up my final question, pick up on what you talked about just a little bit before, which was doing deep work. And you were saying a year and a half of your life you were writing and, and that's deep work and you need a period of no distraction for that. Now in this moment in time, I, that those words keep coming up for me. You know, if nothing else, being in lockdown is an opportunity to do some deep work on whatever you choose it to be on your on your career on your project on your relationships on yourself and when i thought about that i i realized that i have this i have this story around cementing a habit let's just to say let's just pick writing as an example and my story is that it it takes a dropping in to get into a creative space and dropping in needs great stretches of space great stretches of unlimited time creative time and that ironically is not what it, what we have right now. You know, for many of us, again, time is condensed. We've got children at home. We've got many different things going on. Talk to me about your journey with your blog. And I know you put some 
really concrete habits in place very early on that made a massive difference to the trajectory of where it ended up? You know, in a sense, Atomic Habits kind of wrote itself. And what I mean by that is I had to build a writing habit in order to write the book at all. And that started with the blog. It started with my, I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday, and I did that for the first three years. And it was really that writing habit that led to the growth of the business, the growth of the site, and eventually the development and creation of the book. Um, I mean, that writing habit is why we're talking right now. Uh, You know, like we never would have gotten to this place without that. So, um, yeah, I believe strongly in the power that habits have and the way that they can compound and the results that they can provide. And, you know, my hope was that writing Atomic Habits would put all that in one place, you know, that it would be like the most comprehensive or practical guide on how to build a better habit or how to implement uh, those, how to break a bad one. And, um, I like to write about things that I've had to learn or use. And so I, I had to implement those ideas to build my own business and to, you know, to finish the writing itself. And I, I think that's important because a lot of ideas sound good in theory, but they don't hold up in practice. And, uh, the, that process of building that twice a week writing routine of developing the business and writing the book. And then of course, many other areas too, you know, exercise habits and journaling habits and all that type of stuff. Um, all of those are ripe areas for learning. And so those, those lessons from experimentation, um, made their way back into the work in one form or another. So it was kind of this productive loop of both action and thinking, and, uh, they sort of build on themselves, but that, that twice a week writing habit was the the foundational thing that led to the growth of my work. And you had said I would sacrifice scope rather than quality or deadline. If I could only write three good paragraphs and that's all I would write. And so, you know, tying back to that point I was saying before, you, you didn't feel like you needed reams of endless space and time to create. It was very finite. You have like, you've got uh, quality, you have uh, scope, so the, the length of the, or the, the quantity uh, of a project, and you've got consistency. And you kind of you need to choose which one of those is going to be the bottleneck. And I chose to make it timing or consistency. You know, it's like maybe all I can do is write one good sentence or one good paragraph. But if that's the case, something is getting out on Mondays and Thursdays. Um, might not be as long as what I wanted, might not be as great as what I wanted, but it's going to get out. And I think early on, especially in a process of, um, of creative work, it's really important to have that so that you can develop your taste and develop your skills. Um, you know, maybe once you get a few years in, maybe it's a little bit different, but I, even now, you know, I, I, I find that to be a very useful, uh, philosophy to, to reduce the scope, but stick to the schedule. Maybe you can't do a 45 minute workout, but you can do 10 pushups. You know, maybe you can't write a whole chapter, but you can write one sentence. Maybe you can't meditate for 20 minutes, but you can meditate for 20 seconds. And, you know, all that stuff, it it sounds small on any given day, but again, it reinforces your identity. And I think it counts for a lot in the long run. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to close this up here. I have many more questions I can ask you, but I think what we've covered off today, if, if anybody can apply just a portion of what you've covered off today then that will set some really good foundations. So thank you so much for your time, James. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, 
For those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.